I'm Dr. Hilary McBride. Let me take you where microphones rarely go, into my therapy office. It's where my clients hurt, heal, and ultimately thrive. You're gonna hear private conversations that we rarely ever have with ourselves, let alone share with others. Welcome to other people's problems. Maybe along the way you'll discover that other people's problems are a lot like your own. Season three is out now. Subscribe on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Original Podcast. From CBC, this is Love Me, a show about the messiness of human connection. I'm Lou. I am really, really good at dreaming. I mean, I have truly amazing dreams. I can fly. I go on adventures, you know. I remember one, I was on a ship with Ira Glass. We were working on a radio story together, and then a giant wave came and scooped him up with the recording gear. And I thought, oh, no, like, Ira, like, what? Ah, My story is toast. (laughs) Each morning, I'll wake up, and I'll tell my husband the dream I just had. But my husband does not dream. It's like his brain is trying to protect him somehow. You know, in the kind of work he does, he's seen a lot of truly traumatic, terrible things. Things that weigh on him. And I think if he did dream, his dreams just might be too shitty. But I keep hoping... One day, he's going to feel free enough to dream. A good dream. And then I'll know he's okay. Today's episode, The Other Side. I guess our relationship was quite normal. We do quite a lot of everyday things together get up in the morning, one makes coffee, the other one gets some breakfast. And if it was sunny, we'd sit outside and we'd have a favourite song that we'd listen to in the morning. And then I'd go off and do my job. He'd go off and do his thing and and then come together again in the evening at the end of the day and told each other about the kind of day we'd had and what we'd done and who we saw and Our shared space needed to be kept clean and tidy. So there was that. Just domestic chores. Yeah, and then sometimes there'd be a very sudden reminder that things aren't normal at all. One time on a really beautiful, incredibly sunny day, we went for a walk on the beach just to get away from everything, the noise and the people, and just ran around in the the sand, quite silly, (laughs) and sat down, and Tamim was kind of looking out over the sea and was pointing at the distant cliffs. And he turned to me and he was like, so... These cliffs over there, is that like some island? And I was like, no, that's that's England. That's the White Cliffs of Dover. That's 
where you're trying to get to. And it was terrible. It was such a terrible moment because it was so close. And it was the most impossible journey and one of the hardest places for him to go. But I can just go there and be on the other side in 45 minutes. Yeah, he actually had to get up and walk away a few steps and just swallow that. The Cali jungle, as the name already suggests, wasn't an authorised or planned camp. And with the refugee crisis that we've been seeing the last few years, the numbers increased very rapidly and went from a few hundred to several thousand people from all these different places. You'd come through an industrial area by the motorway and then on this quite large site of wasteland you'd see hundreds of tents in all states of disrepair. It was women in tents, children in tents, people with disabilities in tents. It was filthy, there were rats. You were, like, up to your ankles in mud and you'd just have, like, small lakes with people just living in a huge puddle. I first met Tamim after we built a shelter for a group of like six or seven young Syrian men. He was one of the people that the shelter was for and he was cooking us food and bringing us tea. I started speaking Arabic after a while. At the beginning I was quite coy about it, <laughs> tongue-tied and then... Because it, I felt quite emotional about meeting them. Um, the gestures the jokes, and the quite casual sense of humour that's very particularly Syrian was like a big wave of memory, a really intense sense of familiarity. I lost my dad, who is the Syrian part of my family. I lost my dad when I was 14, so it felt that there was a missing link between me in Europe and my Syrian origin. I'm born in Germany and when I was a tiny child we moved to Syria. Stayed there until I was five. And that was the time when the Berlin Wall fell so we decided to go back to Germany. When we'd go on holidays to Syria we'd stay with my family who lives in Damascus. We'd visit friends and go to the sea and we'd have like these incredibly noisy, dynamic meals and tell stories and laugh and pass the food and it was all very... That is one of, for me, one of the hallmarks of Arab culture is that the meals are really social and very noisy. <laughs> After my last visit, which was when I was in my early 20s, I didn't go again for several years because I found it too too difficult to place myself, like, because I don't look the part that people expect an Arab woman to look. And on top of that, I don't even look the part that they expect a European woman to look. 
I have tattoos, I'm tall, I wear quite like masculine clothes. Who is that person? <laughs> And then the uprising started. So that door just suddenly shut. After watching the events in Syria for a few years and being worried for people, being like, oh, I might never see my family again, I heard about the projects in Calais to provide shelters and said, look, um, do you need help? I can be useful. I'm a builder. I was instantly drawn to Tamim. We kind of had a quite similar sense of humour. Laughed about the same silly jokes a lot. But I was very careful with that feeling. Due to the vulnerability, the innate vulnerability of someone who's been forced to flee. As a volunteer, you are seen to be in a position of trust. I was very cautious in striking up really deep friendships. One night we were at Tamim's shelter and we were a group of five, six people having dinner. The guys were chatting. And I just suddenly got really emotional. I just suddenly got... It felt like I was skinless from one moment to the other, just being so aware of this separation from my family and of just the sheer injustice of the whole situation, of that here we are, we're all people. I'm the only one in this room that is a recognised person. And that's because I have a passport that says Germany on it. And I am more than aware of the fact that in a very specific terms, this can be me. That isn't just an abstract idea to me. If my parents would have decided to not go back to Germany, that might be me now. So all that hit me. All these emotions just hit me and I started to cry and I've really, really tried to not cry. One of my own personal rules was do not cry in front of people who do not have the luxury of tears. And then suddenly I couldn't. I was really struggling to arrange my face and keep my emotions together. And, and Tamim just kind of shuffled a little bit in front of me. We were all sat on the floor, cross-legged in a circle. So he just changed his position and just made sure that he'd kind of cover me and I could just lean back into the corner, into the darkness. And then he kind of just reached a tissue to me without ever stopping to follow the conversation and be part of the group. He just completely gave me that moment. That care really opened my heart to Tamim. So Tamim is a very handsome guy. He's got a really strong, expressive way to look at people. And 
I mean, that may sound silly, but I really enjoyed being looked at by him. And I told him that, look, I, I find you really interesting and I'm, I'm feeling attracted to you. And how do you feel? And he was like, well, I'm attracted to you too, but I don't know. Well, we are where we are. Over the next few weeks, we continued the conversation and he'd come to me with questions of like, well, how do you feel about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about us? And then, yeah, like, eventually the inevitable question of like, can I kiss you? Most volunteers lived either in hostels or they'd live in accommodation near the warehouse. I had already decided that I wanted to live in the camp because I wanted to be closer to the community. I felt that it was important to be there at night as well as in the daytime in case of emergencies and in case of police violence, to be there as a witness. Um, because it happened almost on a daily basis. And then very early in our relationship, Tamim offered his space and said that if I wanted to, I was very welcome to stay in his shelter, a two by two and a half metre small shack, thin wooden boards for walls, and then everything was wrapped in plastic and a small wooden door set into that. No windows. One has to make a lot of compromises about privacy and vanity. Basically, there is no privacy and you can't afford much vanity. You will see absolutely everything of your new partner. They are your mirror because there is no actual mirror. At night, we'd often stay awake really late and just talk about different things that he was dreaming of in his new life, what he wanted to work. Then I would ask him questions about Syria and how things had been in the last years. Sometimes sometimes we'd talk about very painful, very emotional themes that almost needed to be kind of cushioned by a whole night of conversation. Falling in love with Tamim in the camp rather than anywhere else in the world made it less of a, like, falling and letting go that maybe most people associate with falling in love just because the the place didn't really allow for that. But much more of a creating small pockets for each other in which we could surrender. Tamim was trying to get onto trucks and cross the border every night or near enough every night. And it was really important to me that he kept doing that because his reason for being in Cali was not 
for us to be together, but for him to make it to the UK. And some of these nightly attempts were incredibly scary. I mean, in the time that I was there, more than 12 people have died trying on that stretch of motorway. Sometimes I felt like Tamim was, instead of going to try to get onto a track to cross a border in dangerous ways, I felt he was kind of a worker going on a night shift. We'd go to bed around midnight, and then later in the night he'd get up, get dressed and get his things ready. I'd often get up with him and we'd have a cup of tea together. Usually not say very much, just be quiet. And then he'd leave. Yeah, sometimes he'd call me while he was trying, when they were waiting in a ditch and waiting for the police cars to pass or waiting for the traffic to slow down. And I could hear all the noises. I could hear the other people, I could hear the police, I could hear the trucks, the traffic sounds. And sometimes I'd not hear anything from him for four or five days in a row. And I'd just have to trust that bad news travel fast. So the way I learned was when I received a message with a GPS location and I opened up the GPS location on a map on my phone and I saw that it was the railway terminal in Dover. And that's how I knew that he'd made it. I was suddenly about a ton lighter and I just jumped up and did a little dance and started excitedly shouting quite a lot until I realised that I was in public and that I should probably not make a scene. <laughs> Sat down again and just giggled hysterically. He was in the UK, finally being able to rest and to get that whole year of exhaustion and never getting a break and always that tension and anticipation and to get that slowly out of his system and to just peel himself out of all of that. Um, I imagine he'd have had like several five-hour showers in the beginning in a row and then just went straight back in just because he could. Um, but it also put a new strain on the relationship because we weren't in the same place anymore. My phone reception in Cali was ridiculously bad and he didn't always have money on his phone so he couldn't always call me when he wanted to. Heavy equipment removes scattered and burned debris from the notorious Calais jungle. Authorities say the camp is now empty after a forced removal that began on Monday. After the eviction, I went to the UK and saw him again. And I think we both started to understand that our relationship had changed quite a lot. Because it felt like we were both going to fall short 
of what we need of a partner. Like, he needed to completely focus on his own new life. I needed to slow down and just process the whole last year of being in Calais and reconnecting with my Syrian side and my Syrian origin. That's when we decided to end the relationship. There was certainly an aspect of love in the times of war. In that way, our relationship was very much marked by Calais and what this place meant. You're more awake and less filtered than the rest of the time. The really hard part is to almost like harness that energy and that intensity and clarity of feeling and then translate it back into the messiness and sometimes contradictory challenges of real life. I think what we've both taken from the relationship <laughs> I don't know, it's so many things. <laughs> um, I feel very proud of both of us for having connected on such a deeply human level in such a difficult place. Thanks so much to Mo for sharing her story. We reached out to Tamim for his side of things. He decided not to participate, but he was happy to have Mo share their story on his behalf. He's currently waiting on his papers in the UK. Once he gets them, he plans to go to school to learn English and find work. As for the song he and Mo used to listen to together every morning, it's a love song by the Lebanese singer Ferouz. It's called Efi Amal, which translates as There is Hope. We'll have a link up on our website, cbc.ca slash loveme. This episode of Love Me was produced by Jody Taylor, Crystal Duhame, and Mira Burt Wintonic. It was mixed by Crystal Duhame. Jody is the producer of a new podcast called A New Normal, audio diaries of Syrians recently arrived in Europe. You can find a link on our website. This episode also featured music by Nick Kipfer. Special thanks to CBC Archives. Love Me's original theme music is by Tim Kingsbury. Tim is a member of Arcade Fire and Sam Patch. Check out Sam Patch's latest release, Yeah You and I, at sampatchmusic.com. Subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash loveme or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Lou Olkowski. Tune in next week for a brand new episode. 
Looking for more CBC Podcasts? Check out Sleepover. It's an unusual social encounter where three complete strangers spend the night together, helping solve each other's problems. Find out more at cbc.ca slash sleepover. Here's a taste. I don't like describing myself. That's how I describe myself. A big part of my identity is being a veteran. I would say I have mild to moderate autism. Everything seems louder to you. I realized I was trans when I was eight years old. I just want to be able to know if I should just go with what I love or just go with what I need to do. My children are upset about me driving. I have been the person that people have looked to to be sexy. Is this what I want to do with my life? For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.